Well, I invite you to turn to First uh, Kings chapter two. First Kings chapter two, and it's again it's a lengthy chapter, uh, forty-six verses. So, uh, before we read, let's let's pray. Father, as we come to your word again, uh, how we thank you for it, and we pray that you'd open our hearts to the message you would give us through it. Um, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So 1 Kings chapter 2. So you remember in chapter 1, there was a bit of uncertainty about who was going to be king. David is an old man and uh, Adonijah tries to take uh, the the throne for himself, but... uh, when news comes to David, he springs into action, and uh, Solomon is anointed as king. And uh, it seems that Adonijah is put back in his place, as it were, uh, that he seems to accept what's happened. And, uh, but as we'll see in a moment, um, uh, that's not all that it seems to be. So chapter 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commands, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their hearts and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner son of Ner and Amasa son of Jether, whom he killed avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt belt round his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table with such loyalty that they they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do with him, and you shall bring his grey head down with, with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned for seven years in Hebron and for 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and said, uh, she said, do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. He said, 
You know that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And she said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to the king, uh, to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, Why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And on his side are Abiathar the priest and Job the son of Zeruiah. And King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do to me and more so if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death this day. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. And to Ab- Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death, but I will not this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the words of the Lord he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. When the news came to Joab, for, uh, it came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told, the king, told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he said, strike him down and bury him. And thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head. Because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. 
The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. And do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem for many days. But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath. And when it was told Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shimei arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day that you go out to, to any place whatever, you shall die? And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandments with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah son of Jehoiada and he went out and struck him down and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Amen. Well, we're looking at uh, one kings in our evening services. And um, in case you missed it the first time, or I didn't say, I'm not sure. Uh, one kings is one of four books uh, that go, kind of go together. Um, that tell of the history of uh, the kings of Israel. Uh, so it's the history after the Judges, so the book of Judges, uh, so you've got five books of Moses, then you've got Joshua taking Israelites into the promised land, and then there's the story of the Judges, and then thereafter is the story of the kings, uh, starting with 1 and 2 Samuel, and then 1 and 2 Kings. And, um, and in the time of Judges, uh, the Judges were intended to be, they were not... They were not kings, but they were intended to be uh, kind of military saviors. Uh, They would be sent by God to save people from their adversaries, the Philistines and all the others that are around. And uh, at crucial moments, the judges would come and uh, save the people. There are many bad judges, but uh, there are some crucial, crucially, there are some good judges that came and saved the people at crucial moments. And this is all in the hand of God. But then when we come to kings, we see that um, uh, kings are appointed. And the first is Saul, uh, who is, called, is, is set apart by God. And, uh, and then David, and then there's a succession of kings thereafter. Now this, this, this plan of moving from judges to kings is all in, within the plan of God. You see, uh, God told Moses that there was going to be kings in Israel. Uh, long further down the line in Deuteronomy chapter 17 
So this is not uh, just made up as we go along. This is uh, all part of the plan of God, that he is doing great things amongst Israel and unfolding his great uh, plan of redemption through all of history. And as, it, as 1 and 2 Samuel unfolds, it becomes clear that uh, the kingdom and the king and the kingdom are crucial to the progress of God's plan of redemption for his people. And so you find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, so we mentioned that briefly last week, two, uh, last time, 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, where Nathan the prophet comes to David and he makes this promise that there is going to be, uh, his throne will endure forever and there will always be a king on the throne, uh, the, the throne of David. And that is such an important promise to bear in mind as we come to the book of Kings. That God has already promised David that uh, he will bless the throne of the kingdom. And, uh, and so the question that we, we need to, to wrestle with as we come to the book of Kings is, how is God keeping his promises about this kingdom? And so as we look at this chapter, and we remember what happened in chapter 1, uh, the question we need to have is, is therefore, how is God establishing his kingdom uh, for his people? Now, it's only partial fulfillment at this point. Solomon is the fulfillment, the, the short-term promise, fulfillment of the promise so far. But it's not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. It's part of his story, it's part of the larger story, which leads to the establishment of the kingdom of God over which shall preside that descendant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is in that line of descendants from David and is the ultimate king who will reign on the throne of David. As I've said many times, that's the, that was the message that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary in Luke chapter 1. That the son that she was going to bear would sit on the throne of David. And so we see the, the, the larger picture of it. So this chapter falls into two sections. Uh, the first is cha- uh, verses 1 to 12, where David, who is close to death, gives a, a commission to his son Solomon tells Solomon how he's supposed to go about being king and being a son. And then the second uh, section from 13 to 46, the larger section, is, is where we see the confirmation of Solomon and the removal of enemies that threaten the kingdom. Um, so we, we, we work through Adonijah, the eldest son who was uh, who thought he had a right in the last chapter to the, to the throne. Then there's Abiathar, the priest who put his lot in with Adonijah. Uh, then we have Joab as well, who also supported Adonijah. And then Shimei, who had uh, cursed David. Um, and that he's going to come back into the story later. And all of those threats need to be removed. So let's look at the first part, verses 1 to 12. And... Uh, Here we see David giving a commission to his son, renewing a promise and 
calling Solomon to obedience to the Lord. Uh, and this is David as a father giving direction to his son. And this is, of course, a pattern that you find in Scripture constantly, that the father teaches the son in the way that he should go. Uh, the problem with David is, of course, that he's left it to the last possible minute. Uh, you know, we, we, we sometimes have a view of David that is, exalts him highly as a great king in the past. In many respects, he was a great king. But in many other respects, he was a complete failure. Uh, he was not a good father. He had many wives. And so his, his family descended into chaos. And that's part of the problem that you see in chapter 1. And so David is on his deathbed and finally he's giving instructions to his son about the, the way that he is to, to rule. And he is not, David has not been a model father for Solomon. In fact, his failures as a father have probably led to degrees of paralysis and chaos in the kingdom. So, now he's trying to make up for lost time on his deathbed. Not a good idea, but at least he's trying. (laughs) So, David now speaks to Solomon. And so, the first thing to to note about what he says to Solomon in verses 1 to 4 is, is David's instruction to his son to be a man and to be courageous. Now, it's quite a common thing, I think, to uh, when, when someone is handing over the baton to a younger protege or a son, um, that this, this sort of thing happens. You may remember that Joshua was uh, encouraged and exhorted by Moses and then by God himself at the beginning of Joshua, uh, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. And this uh, idea of, of courage is so important for fathers to pass on to sons, to encourage your sons to be courageous, for parents to encourage their children to be courageous in the things that really matter. And in seeking to be create, uh, courageous, seek that courage from God. It's not coming from yourself. It's coming from God. So in relationship to God, seek courage. That's, that's really important for families, isn't it? There are many ways in which we, um, you know, we send our children out into the world, don't we? At some point... You're going to send your children, if you've got young children, you're going to send your children out into the world. You may already be doing it if you send them to school. You send your children out into the world, into the school that they go to, or the clubs that they are part of, or whatever it is. And one of the things that we need to communicate to our children is to make a stand for the things that really matter, for the things of Jesus Christ, for the things of God, and not to be ashamed to be a Christian, not to be ashamed to stand for him. And so we need to encourage our children to be courageous, 
in the world. And it's not that we simply say, keep your head down and don't, and don't get involved in anything, just to try and stay out of trouble and that sort of thing. But rather to, to make a stand and a positive stand. Some of, the, some of the children that have come through this church uh, and are now grown up and adults, they have made a stand, some of them. Some of them have been richly blessed because their parents have trained them and taught them and encouraged them to do that. But they need our prayers and encouragement, don't they? Don't we? Our children need our prayers and our encouragement uh, to be courageous and to stand. Now what sort of man is Solomon to be? He's not to be that kind of masculine man that the world presents. You know, the, I don't know, the world, many, half of the world calls it toxic masculinity. The other half of the world calls it true manhood. But none of it is actually godly manhood. So it's not the caricature. Whatever caricature the world presents to us, that's not it. What is godly manhood? It is to be a man after God's own heart. To be a man after God's own heart. You look at verse 3. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commands, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. True manhood is not about being interested in cars or football or all of these things, beer. These all have their place. But that's not what true manhood is. True biblical manhood that God has planned is for a man to, to observe what God requires. True manhood is to absorb yourself in the word of God. So that you can believe everything it teaches you to believe and you do everything it teaches you to do. This is the way to living for God's glory. This is what true manhood is. This is what true humanhood is. To live for God's glory. Faithful obedience to his word. And Everything I've said about manhood you could apply to womanhood as well. Faithful obedience to God's word. That's what you're made to be. And that's what we should do. That's what we should encourage our children to do. And uh, talk to them often about it. It's really important that we teach our children this way. Um, If you don't have that principle in your life as an adult, your children will never learn it. And then they'll be lost in the world. You do not take the time to encourage and exhort your children to live for God. So it's really important. Look at the expected results at the end of verse 3. That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So that you may prosper. It's not about material prosperity. Let me just get that straight. It's not saying you'll be rich if you become a Christian. Or you live like a Christian, you'll be rich. No, not not any of that. Maybe. Maybe not. Probably not. Most Christians have suffered. But you will prosper in manifold ways in relationship to God. Because this is what all this is about fulfilling what God wants for you in your life. To live according to his word. And in that way you prosper. 
And spiritual obedience is the way to spiritual prosperity. And that's what he is calling to. So that's David's instruction to, to Solomon to be a man. But David also instructs him in his kingly role, verses 5 through to 9. And he, he deals with uh, three people here. And I'll just quickly deal with those. But uh, the middle one, Barzillai, in verse 7, um, he is to be blessed by Solomon. Barzillai was a friend of David, helped David uh, when he was uh, being persecuted um, and running from his, his other son, Absalom. And Barzillai was good to him. And therefore, David says to Solomon, uh, his sons, Barzillai's sons, are to receive grace and kindness. But the two other people that are mentioned, um, Joab and uh, Shimei, they are to receive the opposite. So Joab, the great military commander, um, he was uh, David's right-hand man in many ways. He was the commander of the Lord's army. And often he was required to do the nasty work of the king, of David the king. Nasty because it's necessary and sometimes messy and bloody. But it's necessary for the sake of the kingdom. And so Joab was a bit of a bruiser of a guy. And, uh, but he got the job done. However, the problem with Joab is he's, he, on occasions he went beyond the will of the king. And this is what comes up later. That he murdered two men, Abner and Amasa, in cold blood. And blood must pay for blood. And so Joab needs to be dealt with. And then there's Shimei. Um, and uh, David promised that Shimei would not put him to death. Uh, in 2 Samuel but David warns Solomon to keep him under close supervision uh, and to use his wisdom to know what to do with him so he's not saying do anything nasty to, to Shimei but you're a wise man you'll know what to do and so the, uh, the emphasis here is on, um, on on the one hand kindness but also wisdom in dealing with threats to the kingdom Kindness to friends and wisdom in dealing with threats. So that brings us now to the second section, uh, verses 13 to 46. As I know it's a big section, but we'll not uh, go into it in great detail. But the essential message here is that are that the, the, the kingdom's enemies must be destroyed. The kingdom's enemies must be destroyed. Now it's one of the difficulties of this, this passage. Is, is dealing with the, uh, you know, the apparently bloody uh, approach to dealing with these enemies. There's a lot of blood and death. And it doesn't fit with our Western kind of sensibilities. And it's not just because we're Westerners, it's because we're, we don't understand God's ways particularly. And it's worth just making some comments about it. The important thing to, to, to say about this is that we're... It's not a personal matter for Solomon. This is actually not about Solomon. It's about the kingdom. It's about the integrity and establishment of the throne of David for generations to come. So it's not, his, it's not that Solomon is dealing with a personal threat to him, primarily. It is about the threat to the kingdom. 
And uh, for that, capital punishment is necessary. And so Solomon takes up the power of the sword, as, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 13. Uh, the, the power of the sword to deal with enemies. And that is a legitimate civil function, if you like. So we're not to read this and to think, well, I've got enemies, can I just go around and kind of bat them around a little bit and maybe even bump them off? No, you can't. No, that's not the message. (laughs) That's not the point. You're not a civil authority. You're not a ruler over anything. Well, not much anyway. You might be over your house, but you can't kill your children. (laughs) But you, you don't have that power and authority. So that's not the application. We'll come to the application uh, later, But there is a spiritual analogue to this, which is to do with the church. And the, uh, the church is the kingdom of God. So no longer a state and a place in, with a geography and a time uh, and its own civil structure. But now the church of Jesus Christ across the whole world with its own spiritually appointed structure of leadership in, uh, under King Jesus. That there is an analogy of this kind of uh, dis- what we might call discipline. It is that uh, when you have people in the church who are continually involved in sin and unrepentant about it, we're looking at repentance this morning, when you have people that are unrepentant for their personal sins and just continue to do them, such people are threats to the church in terms of the spiritual health of the church. And therefore it's appropriate for the church at times to exercise its powers of discipline to uh, remove people from the fellowship of the church and to put them outside of the church in order to preserve the health of the kingdom of God. And you can see that in the the way that the apostles uh, speak about Uh, False teachers, that's the big obvious one. The apostles speak a great deal about uh, false teachers and how they have to be removed. They They must be stopped from teaching and if necessary they need to be removed. And sometimes they will simply leave. And those who have gone out from us were obviously not from us and not of us. Otherwise, false teaching becomes like a poison that begins to eat into the church and destroy it from within. Now, I don't think you have to look very far to see how the modern Western church has generally not dealt with this problem. But it's full of false teaching, false teachers, and it's dying in the Western church. Mainline churches are, seem to be in terminal decline. And they don't seem to know what to do about it. But they don't seem to realize that it comes down to the, the absence of the gospel and the absence of biblical teaching and godly men in the pulpit. So what we're seeing here is, in this passage is the disposing of threats to the kingdom. And uh, let me just walk through some of those. So, through those. so the first is Adonijah. And uh, what was the problem with Adonijah? Uh, we left him in chapter 1. Uh, he seemed quite submissive to Solomon, who had uh, come to the throne, and Adonijah seemed to accept that, um, except that he wouldn't be king. 
But one of the things that we know is that when someone tries to take, here's the subtlety, the historical thing. When, you tr- when someone comes and tries to take the wife of a previous king, that is a kind of claim to the throne. So what's going on here? Um, this woman, this young woman, Abishag, who's, um, who keeps David company in bed in the beginning of chapter 1, uh, a young, beautiful woman, uh, probably too young for David, but, not, but probably the right age for Adonijah. And Adonijah says... Mm, I want her. Now, is this just uh, he's besotted with her and he just fancies her? Uh, unlikely. To take the wife of the previous king or a concubine of the previous king is to lay claim to the throne. And so Adonijah is actually signaling something important in making this request. And I think he knows that it's a problematic request because he goes via... Bathsheba. He knows that if he goes to Solomon, Solomon is going to know what's going on. But he goes to Bathsheba. And uh, because she might have leverage with Solomon. And you know, Bathsheba, who is no doubt very beautiful, but maybe not very wise, offers to do anything that he asks, which is always a foolish thing. I've got a favor to ask of you. You say, well, what is it? And then I'll tell you if I can do it. That's the sensible thing to say. But uh, Bathsheba says, yes, I'll do anything. Speak. Carry on, tell me. And so she takes up this request. But when it comes to Solomon, Solomon knows exactly what's going on. And so he, he says he's not actually humble at all. Adonijah is not humble at all. He's actually making a play for the kingdom, for the throne. So he's a threat. So we need to deal with him. He's carried out treason in chapter 1. I let him off. But you can see that he's still got that design. So I need to deal with him. So he sends Beniah, son of Jehoiada, to strike him down. Second person is Abiathar the priest. So Abiathar the priest was an accomplice of Adonijah. Um, and because of the, he, he too has committed treason essentially by putting his lot in with Adonijah because he seeks to subvert the, the promise of God. And so he deserves death. But Solomon offers mercy, verse 26. Uh, Go to Anathoth, to your states, for you deserve death, but I will not at this time put you to death because you have carried the ark of the Lord before David my father and because you shared my father's affliction. So he recognizes there are some mitigating circumstances, some mitigating character issues that uh, mean, well, let's see how this goes. And so he is expelled from the priesthood, in verse 27, although he's allowed to live. So he's no longer carrying out his role as a priest. And once again, that's a, a pattern that you see in the church, that you know, if uh, I or Falco or Johnny... Um, the elders here were to be found in a, you know, an open and public sin. It's quite right for us to be deposed from our office if that's the case, but still remain part of the church. Uh, there's always room for uh, a restoration as a disciple, not necessarily to the office. 
And so, so that's the that's Abiathar, and nothing more is said of, of him. The third person is Joab, and Joab knows that he's in great danger. You can see the guilt all over his face. He he runs to the the uh, to the tent of the Lord, where the, at this point there's no temple yet. That's coming soon, but. Uh, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is in the tent, and the altar is in the tent. And uh, so he runs to this tent of the Lord, and he lays his hands on the, the horns of the altar, the corners, which are made like horns. And he's, it's, he's seeking sanctuary. He's seeking sanctuary. He doesn't want to be killed. But to no avail... He is struck down in verse 34. Now it's important to know why he's struck down. Not because of the treason. Maybe he too could have been uh, shown some mercy and allowed to live um, in isolation somewhere. But something else is at play here. In verses 31 and 32 it says this. The king replied to him, do as he said, strike him down and bury him. And thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt of the blood." That Joab shed without cause. That's the problem. Joab has shed blood without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head. Because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel. And Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. These two men were murdered in cold blood. And the, the guilt of that murder is on Joab. And so for that reason, though David didn't carry out judgment, Solomon is to carry out judgment and kill him. And so Joab is, is put to death. And then lastly, there's Shimei. Uh, Shimei came into the story in 2 Samuel 16, um, where he cursed David. And the reason he comes back to the story at this point is because The curse on David presents, as it were, a threat to the throne. The curse still stands. Now David promised not to kill Shimei at the time. And Solomon initially was willing to let Shimei live. Though in very restricted circumstances. So he's to move to Jerusalem. Which at that time wasn't very big. um, And to stay there in that small city. And Solomon is able then to keep his eye on Shimei and guard the throne that way. However, and it seems to be going well until three years later, Shimei has a couple of servants that run away to the king of Gath, one of the Philistine kings. And Shimei says, I'm not having that. I'm going to go and and get my servants back. Um, They're mine. And uh, so he goes and he brings them back. And it's worth just asking at this point, what's the attitude of Shimei at this point? Remember what Solomon has done. He has uh, given him a command to stay in Jerusalem or in fear of death if he leaves. He must stay. What does Shimei do? He says, ah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. Uh, he doesn't mean it. I mean, I've had three years of uh, just... You know, bide my time and maybe he's forgotten and maybe it doesn't matter anymore. So I'm just going to go. Here's the issue. Treating lightly the commands of God. 
treating them lightly, thinking that God forgets the commands that he makes. This is the kind of thing that's behind it all. See, indifference to God's commands is, is deathly to the church. Uh, so Shimei is uh, struck down because he did that. And at that point, the last threat to Solomon's reign is removed. Now, as I said earlier, uh, we can't simply uh, lift the story and apply it to the church directly. Um, we need to remember that the kingdom of God here in this passage is set within the context of um, civil uh, and national authority, which is not true today in the kingdom of God. Uh, The kingdom of God is not limited to this earth. It's not limited to any nation on this earth or any political power on this earth. Um, Spiritual authority and civil authority are separated one from the other. But there are analogies that we can draw in the New Testament church. And it's important to note that the, the question is still the same though. How will God keep his promise about the kingdom? And so there are some lessons we can learn about for the New Testament church. So f- four things, quickly, very quick things. One page of notes. <laughs> four things. Firstly, he keeps his promises despite opposition. And this is the pattern all the way through the scripture. That there's a battle going on. There's a constant battle and it seems like at times that God's kingdom is not going to be victorious. But God still keeps his promises in the midst of it. You see, this is the, uh, every every uh, conflict and battle you see in the Old Testament leading up to Christ is the fulfillment of that great promise in Genesis 3.15 where God says to the serpent, uh, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so thereafter, you've got these two opposing forces fighting their way until it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the fight comes to a conclusion on the cross. God keeps his promises all the way through, even though it looks like we're losing. God keeps his promises despite enormous opposition. Secondly, he keeps his promises despite the failures of his servants. So David was a failure. He was a sinner. There's plenty of evidence for that in Samuel, to Samuel. Yet, God's promise still stands. So you and I, and the church as a whole, we may fail. We may be full of sin in many ways, but God's promise will not fail. It will continue. With or without us. Thirdly, God uses, sometimes uses means to fulfill his promises that give us great dilemmas um, as we think about them, even great, you know, great concern. There's a lot of blood in this chapter. And we, start, start, we can look at it and think, oh, that's terrible, I'm just not having that. The God of the Old Testament is a terrible God, but the God of the New Testament in Jesus is good. That's what some people think. No, no, no. Don't think that way. God uses... Sometimes, even evil means. Not because he's being evil. But he works through evil things sometimes. 
to bring about all that he has purposed. So we have that verse in Romans 8.28. For, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We may go through terrible trials, terrible suffering. Some of us may die for the faith. Whatever it is. But God's promise still stands in the midst of it. And he sometimes uses terrible means to, to bring about his purposes. Think of the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a terrible thing? Why should an innocent man go to a cross and suffer and die for no reason? And yet it's through that that our salvation comes. Finally, fourthly, the fact that it's all a mess shows us, I think, how determined God is to bring about the fulfillment of his, of his promises. Even though it's a mess, we see time and time again, God will fulfill his promises. And therefore we should continue to trust him, no matter how dreadful everything gets. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 2, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, this chapter, uh, this, in many ways a ripping yarn, it's uh, uh, an interesting story, it's, uh, but it's full of intrigue and uh, exposes many of the machinations of the human heart, and yet in the midst of it all, our God is keeping his promises. You are keeping your promise to establish your kingdom, and now in this age we see the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rules and reigns. He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is King and Lord. And we bow before him. And we pray that you'd help us to trust him through all our troubles and trials. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.